In 1961, the 41-year-old leader of the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon, appeared in court in South Korea. It was far from his first brush with the law. But this time it was different. He wasn't facing down torture or being threatened with years of hard labor for his religious beliefs. Instead, he just had to endure the glares of a few indignant parents. They were upset that Moon had officiated a mass wedding, including their children. 33 couples were married in all. The frustrated mothers and fathers, who didn't belong to the church, demanded law enforcement step in. But it wasn't illegal to marry off that many people at once. No matter how scathing the accusations, Moon never lost his serene smile. The world was changing, and he would be at the forefront. He and his wife were the Earth's true parents, chosen by God to show the world what an ideal family looked like. And there was nothing anyone could do about it, not even the authorities. Those who followed him believed he was a prophet, a second Jesus Christ. In their mind, his judgment couldn't possibly be wrong, and his disciples were more than happy to pay for the privilege of being among the first so-called blessed couples. But they wouldn't be the last. In the end, Sun Myung Moon walked out of that courtroom a free man. His first mass wedding had been a success, and it was only the beginning. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is the second episode in our four-part deep dive into the Unification Church, once commonly known as the Moonies. Over the next few episodes, we'll follow the church's history as it goes from a controversial Korean religious movement to a massive organization with followers all around the world and an influential political body. Last time, we covered the incredible early life of Sun Myung Moon. Born in Korea during a period of occupation and war, Moon sought to unite Christians all over the country. His faith eventually landed him in a North Korean labor camp, which he escaped after nearly three grueling years. In 1954, he formally founded the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity, the Unification Church for short. This time, we'll follow Moon as he becomes a fervent anti-communist, well-known religious leader, and business tycoon. But his fame and success came hand-in-hand hand with new critics, international scandals, and political intrigue. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. By 1954, 34-year-old Sun Myung Moon had made his first steps toward officially establishing the Unification Church. Before we go too much further, we should note much of the following information comes from Moon's official autobiography titled, As a Peace-Loving Global Citizen. So some claims may need to be taken with a grain of salt. As Moon tells it, he'd managed to gather a handful of followers in the South Korean cities of Busan and Daegu, but he'd attracted his fair share of critics as well. Other churches in the area weren't too keen on Moon's teachings, and it's not hard to see why. He told people that Jesus Christ's crucifixion had not been predestined. The hatred of man had prevented Jesus from fulfilling his holy mission to establish God's kingdom on earth. Moon claimed it was the job of each and every Christian to finish what he started. To be successful, they had to discard their differing ideologies and come together under the banner of the Unification Church and, of course, under Moon. He essentially put himself on equal footing with the Son of God. He was to be the second Christ, the only one who could lead the world and carry out God's will. In a sense, he was trying to carve out his own spot in the Holy Trinity. The other denominations wouldn't stand for it. They branded Moon a heretic and began to harass his followers. Before long, he was forced to shut down his operations in Busan and Tegu and migrate to Seoul with a few of his followers in tow. His wife and young son came along too, though his wife refused to be involved with his teachings. If Moon hoped the change in scenery would help her come around, he was sorely disappointed. His latest church wasn't much to look at. It consisted of a single 8-by-8-foot room that could accommodate, at most, maybe six worshippers at once. While Moon was just happy to have a place of his own, his new neighbors weren't quite so keen on him. Locals joked about his decrepit hut, and mostly dismissed the temple as nonsense. As always, Moon plowed ahead anyway. He'd spent nearly three years in a labor camp with nothing but his faith to lean on. He wouldn't be discouraged by a few unkind words. He made do with what little he had and continued his mission. He dyed an old army uniform black and wore it as a suit when he held services. His new acolytes followed his example, holding firm despite the naysayers. One woman's family forcibly shaved her head as punishment for attending Moon's church. Yet she still came back the next Sunday, ready to pray and evangelize. Over time, Moon extended his reach beyond his own neighborhood. He targeted local college students, hoping to recruit the next generation with his optimistic predictions about South Korea's future. Two months later, according to Moon, membership at his little church exploded. Although the exact numbers are unknown, he claimed dozens of students left their dorm rooms to worship with him. The movement apparently got so big that one of the schools, Ewa Women's University, stepped in and sent over a theology professor to investigate Moon. They wanted to know exactly what kind of fringe beliefs they were dealing with. Moon met the professor, spoke to her about his doctrine, and invited her to a service. A week later, she became a passionate member of his congregation. 
It was a boon for the Unification Church, but the university only dug in its heels. The two major schools that Moon recruited followers from were funded in part by Christian organizations. It was a public relations nightmare for their students to attend a renegade church. Afraid of hemorrhaging students and losing their credibility, the universities warned there would be harsh penalties for anyone involved with Moon's denomination. That didn't do much to stem the tide, however. Moon had whipped the students into such a frenzy that they were willing to die for his church. He claimed he tried to counsel the young men and women, insisting they return to school and graduate, but they refused to leave him in the lurch. CD rumors started to swirl, accusing Moon of all sorts of nefarious activities involving the co-eds. People claimed he danced naked during worship and took part in other strange rituals. The local people were livid, and some ministers even openly prayed for his death. The gossip was completely at odds with what actually took place in his tiny church, where there wasn't even enough room to dance. But Moon had been around the block enough times to know there were some things he simply couldn't control. He did his best to ignore the chatter and focus on his work. Eventually, though, the universities had enough. Six professors were ousted, and 16 students were expelled for supporting the Unification Church. When the story first hit the papers, the community largely supported the administration, but kicking kids off campus seemed too extreme, and people pointed out the faulty logic. Atheist and non-Christian students were allowed at the same universities without issue. Why should Moon's followers be treated any differently? Of course, Moon was in agreement. Even so, he felt deeply uncomfortable with the influx of expelled members, whom he now felt responsible for. Some were estranged from their families and had nowhere else to go. All the drama turned public opinion against him once again. Local churches reported Moon to the authorities, accusing him of running a cult. In the summer of 1955, law enforcement swarmed around his hut. They made their way inside, ducking down to avoid the low beams in the entrance. They arrested Moon along with four other members there. The way Moon described the situation, it sounded like a clear witch hunt. Seoul residents and especially other religious leaders wanted the Unification Church punished, and the police were tasked with creating a legal justification for it. In the end, they settled on charging him with evading the military draft, a pretty insulting accusation considering Moon's years of hard labor. He was definitely offended, but he saw the entire ordeal as another test of his faith. He couldn't expect the average person to comprehend his holy mission. Only he was chosen by God. If it was God's will that he be called a fraud and a draft dodger, then he could endure it. He had to. And his optimism ultimately paid off. After three painful months of imprisonment, he was found not guilty and released. Unfortunately for him, more dark clouds were gathering on the horizon. Moon's wife, Chaesun Kill, was beyond frustrated by the time he was released. Maybe he could endure being repeatedly imprisoned, slandered, and chased out of town, but she didn't want to live that way. And she didn't want her nine-year-old son to be forced to either. Since reuniting with Moon three years earlier, she begged him to stop preaching and give up the church. Moon refused to even meet her halfway. He only took orders from God. And he certainly didn't listen to critics, even if they were his own family. By 1955, things between him and Shay were worse than ever. While it seems they'd separated in 1953, when Moon left for Seoul and Shay and their son stayed in Busan, they were still married. 
She desperately wanted a divorce, but Moon felt it would be against God's wishes. His in-laws pleaded with him to let her move on. Still, he wouldn't listen. Leaving her with no other options, Che had to make herself heard. She started disrupting his services, screaming at him in the streets, and cutting him deep with her insults. According to Moon, she even broke church property and doused his followers with feces. She really had to go that far to get through to Moon. After multiple attempts at reconciliation, he finally caved. It seems he was okay with his wife refusing to participate in the church. Considering his religious beliefs, he might have even preferred that to divorce. But he couldn't keep letting his wife harass his followers. It was undermining his God-given purpose. And by that point, she wouldn't accept anything short of a total break. So reluctantly, he agreed to cut things off. With that obstacle out of the way, he was truly free to pursue his calling however he saw fit. Though to be fair, that's what he had been doing all along. Moon threw himself into growing his church after the split. He'd cultivated a small but devoted community of acolytes in Seoul. Now, he was determined to push his beliefs beyond the border, no matter how dangerous the journey. Coming up, Moon spreads his message far and wide. It's been said that art is in the eye of the beholder. But what about greed or chaos? Hi, it's Richard from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries. This September, join us as we comb through the clues of some of the greatest art mysteries of all time. The Lost Da Vinci, the fake Rothko, the real identity of Banksy. If you've never listened to Unexplained Mysteries before, there's no better time to dive in than with this fantastic five-part special. You can also find hundreds of other mystifying stories and new episodes each week by following Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now back to the story. After divorcing his first wife in 1955, Sun Myung Moon dedicated himself to taking his unification church to the next level. It was already bringing in a bit of money through donations, so he took out a loan and bought a fixer-upper in Seoul. It would serve both as a new house of worship and a regular home. Moon prayed and slept there, though he claimed he didn't do much of the latter. In fact, he said that for the next seven years, he only got one or two hours of sleep per night because he worked so tirelessly on his church. And this may be true. But there's no hard evidence to back it up. And there are very few people in the world, if any, who could function normally on such a small amount of sleep for seven years straight. On the other hand, Moon clearly was working hard. A year after the not guilty verdict, the Unification Church was gaining steam. According to him, it reached 400 members strong. 
Some good publicity was a major reason why. Word spread that Moon had incredible insight into his followers. On multiple occasions, he claimed to pick up on things he shouldn't have been aware of. He could immediately tell when a person was sick, and sometimes even knew the specific details of the sins they refused to open up about. Yet as time went on, Moon demonstrated these miracles less and less. He believed that uncertainty, faith, and real redemption should be the goal of a preacher, not showing off petty magic tricks. Though it's also possible that after 400 members, he simply had trouble keeping up with everyone's personal affairs and individual health conditions. Still, while Moon's message was definitely getting across to the public, his circumstances really hadn't improved much. He was still pinching pennies and sacrificing meals to get by, just like many of his followers. He was used to living on a budget, but the lack of resources was getting in the way of his ambition. He wanted an audience that extended beyond South Korea. He felt the entire world needed to hear what he had to say, and he was determined to make it happen, no matter the cost. He wasn't the only one either. His passion, faith, and confidence were infectious. So when Moon asked one of his members, Bong Chun Che, to evangelize in Japan, Bong Chun agreed, no questions asked. Which was especially surprising since most Koreans weren't even allowed to visit Japan at the time. The church had to secure a loan to send Bong Chun by extra legal means in 1958. Upon his arrival, Bong Chun was immediately arrested. Before he had the chance to spread a single word of God's good news, he faced deportation. It must have been frustrating. But Bong Chun was a man of faith, so he likely asked himself, what would Jesus do? Or what would Sung Myung Moon do? The answer he settled on was to fast until he made himself sick. Japanese law enforcement transferred him to a hospital to recover from a self-induced fever. Once there, he waited for the right moment, just like Moon had done in the labor camp years earlier. When the time finally came, Bong Chun was ready. He managed to escape from the hospital and evade the authorities for months. He tried desperately to draw in some new followers for Moon while scraping by any way he could. By October 1959, he'd officially founded a branch of the Unification Church in Japan. Though, according to a 1991 piece by scholar Jeffrey Bale, it seems Bong Chun was the only member back then. Moon wasn't discouraged by the lack of support. That same year, he arranged for a few more of his devotees to travel to the United States. His empire was gradually expanding, but to succeed in his holy mission, he needed more than followers. He had to accomplish what Jesus Christ hadn't, to stage a holy marriage and raise the ideal Christian family. He'd already failed once in that pursuit. He knew this time he needed a partner who was fully prepared to embrace his divine mission. That included becoming the new mother of humanity. Clearly, his previous wife, Che Sun Kil, wasn't ready to take on such responsibility. Moon felt she'd rejected her calling from God. He couldn't risk that happening again, and he already had someone more agreeable in mind. A few years after divorcing Che, 37-year-old Moon happened to meet the 14-year-old daughter of one of his followers, a girl named Hak Ja Han. While his church made inroads into the U.S., Moon claimed he felt God preparing him for another marriage. Around the same time, several of his followers had strange dreams. Moon chose to interpret them as divine signs that he was meant to wed Hak Ja. In 1960, the 40-year-old fulfilled his own prophecy. 
In April of that year, he married his dream bride, who was 17 by then. She became pregnant almost immediately. Moon told his new wife that they couldn't be an ordinary couple. Their destiny was to become the true parents of the world. Their children, literal and figurative, would found God's holy kingdom on earth. And apparently that meant Hawk Jaw had to follow Moon's lead no matter what. He demanded total obedience. As he saw it, he'd been unfairly pressured into a divorce with his first wife. Five years later, he still hadn't learned to compromise. So the only way a marriage could possibly work is if Hawk Jaw did all the compromising for him. He was dead serious. To make sure she had what it took to devote herself to his holy mission, Moon insisted she harden her heart. The very next day after they wed, he insisted Hawk Jaw cut off contact with her family for three full years. In Moon's words, he was asking his bride to live an ascetic life, like a nun. And he wasn't going to provide her with much support while she did it either. He even forced her to live in an entirely separate home for a time. He wrote, I was often involved in worship services or praying through the night and was rarely at home. But the separation was not for practical reasons. The separation was to establish a spiritual condition of unconditional devotion to Hak Jahan's mission. So, to slow down here, Moon married a young woman less than half his age. As a lifelong member of his church, Hakja likely believed he was a second Jesus Christ, whose words effectively amounted to those of God himself. Moon knew she was close with her mother and had little to no outside influences. Growing up, Hakja was only allowed to go to two places, school and the Unification Church. Still, Moon deliberately separated the two women for three years, not only did Hak Jaw not have her mother to lean on while adjusting to matrimony, adulthood, and motherhood, she didn't have Moon's support either. There seemed to be no limits to his cruel treatment, and things only got worse once she actually had a child. Moon wrote that Hak Jaw was experiencing postpartum illness and living in a room with no heating along with the new baby. He apparently couldn't go see her at the time, though he doesn't explain the exact reason. In his autobiography, however, he brazenly admits to purposely making his wife suffer, supposedly to prepare her for the trials ahead. Here are his own words, quote, During the time we lived together, her environment was relentless. Hawkjaw never had even a single free moment for herself. She constantly was on edge, as if she were walking on a thin layer of ice. Sometimes, even her affection for me had to be curtailed for the sake of her eternal mission. On the one hand, it seems hard to believe this was the same man who, as a political prisoner, was known for his compassion. But really, his behavior toward Hawk Jaw was nothing new. Moon didn't make trade-offs when it came to his holy mission, no matter who got hurt in the process. He had to overcome unjust obstacles in a North Korean labor camp, so his wife had to deal with the harsh realities of being married to Sun Myung Moon. While she struggled to fill her new role, Moon kept himself busy by tending to his flock. He wanted the Unification Church to make inroads in other countries, but he needed cash and lots of it if the group was going to meet its full potential. To supplement the small amount he was bringing in through donations, he started to think like an entrepreneur. As Moon put it, quote, I believe the purpose of business is not simply to make money, it is also to support the missionary work, which is the work of God. To start, Moon looked at where his members were already spending their hard-earned cash. 
he found they were devoting a surprising amount to postage, primarily because he told them to. You see, in the interest of building a community within the church, Moon asked his followers to correspond with each other at least three times per month. Stamps didn't cost much, only 40 Korean won, less than a single U.S. dollar. Still, the expense added up quickly. So, Moon devised a workaround. He had devotees scrape off their used stamps and donate them to the church. Then he turned around and sold them back, presumably at a discount. It may sound like small potatoes, but the church made a million won in the first year alone. That was about two-thirds of the loan they took out to send Bong Chun-che to Japan. To further supplement their income, Moon had his followers hand-paint black-and-white photos to colorize them, then sold them to tourists for a profit. Although these ventures brought in a tidy sum, it still wasn't enough to broadcast his message all over the world. He needed to attract more attention, spread his ideology, and earn some cash along the way. He found that hosting his followers' weddings satisfied all three criteria. As the true father, Moon didn't believe marriage was just about romantic love. It was about creating a family that would one day raise godly children. These kids, no matter who their actual parents were, would be charged with carrying on Moon's legacy. And he didn't see why he should waste his time waiting for his congregants to find their soulmates organically. Moon felt more than qualified to make the matches himself. Plus, he probably figured if he was going to be at the pulpit anyway, he might as well preside over multiple marriages at the same time. In later years, he charged hundreds or thousands of dollars per couple to officiate weddings, and it proved to be an efficient way to bring in cash from his followers. But it also sent a clear message. Moon only paired people with other members of his church. Loyalty to God and Moon was paramount, more important than personal compatibility. In 1961, he held the first-ever Unification Church mass wedding in Seoul. He chose 33 couples from among his congregation. Most were hand-picked by Moon himself, though a few had already been married and were asked to take part in the blessing. The locals weren't too happy about Moon's latest stunt. The parents of the chosen members in particular were upset. Not all of their relatives belonged to the Unification Church, and they strongly opposed putting Moon in charge of their children's futures. Some even contacted the police. Moon went to court more than once, but ultimately there wasn't much the authorities could do. The young men and women had all agreed to the ceremony, and it wasn't illegal to marry more than one couple at a time. Moon challenged the status quo and came out on top yet again. He'd been called every name under the sun, had his life threatened, and was even imprisoned for his beliefs. But he seemed unstoppable. No matter what his critics said or did, Sun Myung Moon wouldn't quit until the entire planet knew his name. Coming up, Moon sets out to conquer the world. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. 
In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Now back to the story. In 1961, Sun Myung Moon held the Unification Church's first mass wedding. By that point, the 41-year-old managed to open a satellite branch in Japan and was bringing in more money than ever. Still, he wasn't close to reaching his ultimate goals. To do that, he'd really need to shoot for the stars. Moon relied on what he had, a ton of passionate disciples, to expand his influence. One of his most dedicated followers was a Korean military attaché named Lieutenant Colonel Bo Hee Park. Park worked in Washington, D.C., allegedly as a liaison between the Korea Central Intelligence Service, or KCIA, and U.S. intelligence agencies. Before we go on, we should note that the Unification Church has adamantly denied any connection to the KCIA. Colonel Park has denied being employed by the intelligence agency. But in 1978, the New York Times reported on newly released U.S. intelligence reports from 1963. The documents, which came from an undisclosed source, made a connection between the Unification Church and the KCIA. The Unification Church sued the New York Times for libel after the paper published these articles. That suit was dismissed. The New York Times report concerned a man named Kim Jong-pil, who founded the KCIA in 1961. It stated, quote, Kim Jong-pil organized the Unification Church while he was director of the ROK Central Intelligence Agency and has been using the church as a political tool. As we've described, the Unification Church was originally founded in 1954 by Moon, and there's no evidence to indicate the government was involved in its early years. On the other hand, the KCIA had a major presence in the country ever since the agency was created. The New York Times reported in 1977, quote, In its 16 years of existence, the Korean intelligence agency has earned above all a reputation as one of the most brutal and venal security services in the world. A State Department official described the agency to a journalist as quite simply a combination of the Gestapo and the Soviet KGB. The KCIA was also intimately involved in South Korean trade. In the same article, the New York Times reported that the intelligence agency seemed to approve almost all major commerce in the country. If anyone wanted to do business with South Korea, odds were they had to pay the KCIA for the privilege, either in cash or in favors. Based on these reports, it seems the KCIA engaged in some repressive practices and allegedly had a hand in organizing the Unification Church in 1963. Beyond that, it is difficult to suss out the details of their potential involvement. Again, Sun Myung Moon denied ever entering into a covert arrangement with the KCIA. Realistically, though, some of Moon's goals aligned perfectly with the KCIA's aims. Like the South Korean government, he was an ardent anti-communist, thanks to his years of hard labor. And like the government, he wanted to see his country's cultural and political influence spread far and wide as long as that went hand-in-hand with unification theology, of course. 
The entire truth isn't clear, but after examining the evidence, a 1978 U.S. Congressional Subcommittee reported there was, quote, a great deal of independent corroboration for the suggestion in U.S. intelligence reports that Kim Jong-pil and the Moon Organization carried on a mutually supportive relationship, as well as for the statement that Kim used the Unification Church for political purposes. Regardless, it's undeniable that the Unification Church was doing pretty well in the early 60s. In 1963, Moon had his first fishing boat built, marking the beginning of a new and eventually massive business enterprise. While that venture was still finding its sea legs, he also launched some cultural initiatives. To get one of them off the ground, he relied on help from his most eager disciple, Colonel Bo Hee Pak. In 1964, Pak left the government. His idea led to the creation of the Korean Cultural and Freedom Foundation, or KCFF. The foundation's purpose was to cultivate respect and friendship between the citizens of the United States and Korea. The first honorary chairman of the KCFF just happened to be the founder of the KCIA, Kim Jong-pil. Scholar Jeffrey Bale argues there was an early connection between the KCFF and the Unification Church. He published a piece in Lobster Magazine, a publication focused on the influence of national security services that has discussed conspiracy theories. According to Bale, a year before the KCFF officially launched, Colonel Pak put together a brochure showcasing the Foundation's potential projects. The only initiative named in the packet was one sponsored by the Unification Church. Moon had created a troupe for girls that specialized in traditional Korean dance called the Little Angels. Pak wanted to help fund the group using his new foundation and the political connections he'd nurtured in Washington. One of Colonel Pak's acquaintances, a pilot named Robert Rowland, claimed Pak was forthcoming about his intentions in private. Rowland said Pak described the KCFF as a, quote, front organization. Bale also wrote that Pak allegedly told Roland that the KCFF could help Moon raise his stock among politicians and the wealthy. The Unification Church and Colonel Pak deny Roland's claims. Either way, Moon's hopes for his little angels were high. The group may have genuinely been designed to promote Korean dance and enrich the children involved, but it also served to widen Moon's cultural influence. He sent his young troop abroad to educate foreigners about Korean culture and about the Unification Church. The more avenues he pursued, the greater Moon's success. While his group certainly wasn't rich, he now had several potential income streams, besides traditional donations. And by 1965, he had enough to deploy missionaries to 10 countries around the world. It was a start, but Moon still wasn't satisfied. He wanted to quadruple his missionary work in the coming years. Before he could do that, though, he felt he had to see the world for himself. That same year, 45-year-old Sun Myung Moon embarked on a globe-trotting vacation that would bring him to 40 different countries. While his wife tended to multiple children at home, Moon was busy filling up his passport. His second stop was the USA, where he traveled through all 48 continental states. Touring the vast countryside from the backseat of a rented station wagon, Moon began to dream of expanding his business operations stateside. Experiencing U.S. culture for the first time had a profound effect on him. Ever since World War II ended, Moon, like many others, had watched the U.S.'s global influence grow. Perhaps because of his connection to Colonel Park, Moon believed Korea's future and his churches had to be linked with the U.S. 
It was the middle of the Cold War, and Moon felt the world was in the midst of a fairy tale battle of good versus evil. Since he already saw the communists as evil, that meant the U.S. had to be on the side of good. So after his exhausting road trip, he devoted himself to establishing a positive relationship with the United States. He knew the country had the resources to help South Korea flourish. That, in turn, would set the stage for him to spread his own ideology. These thoughts percolated in his mind for the rest of his world tour, which took 10 months in total. Once Moon returned home, he was more motivated than ever. He threw himself into organizing missionary work, hoping to send followers to every place he'd been. Which was an even more daunting task than it may sound. Many of the countries Moon wanted to evangelize in, like Czechoslovakia, were headed by communist governments. They typically didn't look kindly on foreign religious groups. Even so, Moon was adamant that his devotees venture into those nations. God's word had no limits, and in his mind, communism was the world's number one force of evil, the most powerful tool of the devil. The only way to fight against it was prayer, missionary work, and the doctrine of Sun Myung Moon. He truly felt that as a religious figure, he stood head and shoulders above the political leaders of the world. If the people could organize under him instead, then he could show them the way to happiness. After his brutal experience in North Korea, it's no surprise that Moon was a staunch anti-communist. But he apparently expected his followers to brave the same dangers he'd once faced, and his decisions had consequences. In 1973, 30 unification missionaries in Czechoslovakia were arrested. One of them, a 24-year-old woman named Marie Zivna, died in prison. Moon called her a martyr. The next year, another follower met the same fate while trying to help Moon fulfill his sacred mission. Moon wrote, When they died, they suffered in my place. I asked myself, is my life worth so much that it could be exchanged for theirs? Whatever his answer may have been, he continued to install missionaries in communist countries. Back in Korea, he prayed for their safety, believing this was the best way to protect their lives. When writing about this period, Moon stated, This was how I risked my life and the lives of our members to overthrow communism and build God's kingdom. It wasn't just communism that raised Moon's hackles, though. He still had his eyes on the United States. But now, he felt the superpower had become morally corrupt. It was his duty to change that. Though he tried for years to obtain a visa, he ran into nothing except delays and red tape. It wasn't until 1971 that he received temporary residency in the U.S. He was finally where he really wanted to be, at the center of the global stage. If he could touch the hearts of Christians in North America, then he might finally be able to unite the world. It was time for the next phase of the Unification Church, but the road ahead would be bumpy. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with Part 3 on the Unification Church. We'll follow Sun Myung Moon as he makes inroads into U.S. politics and faces greater backlash than ever before. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. 
This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.